So Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Let me read from that this morning. So hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing on the preaching and hearing of it. Great God and loving Heavenly Father, Thank you that you have given us your word to be a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. And Lord, we pray that as we come and hear your word, and as I preach it, that your light would shine upon us so that we can see and know and live in light of the truth that you speak. Lord, speak, your servants are listening. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been going through a series in Zephaniah, working through this this minor prophet. And it's minor not because he's not as important, it's just because it's smaller than some of the other ones. And the last time we were in Zephaniah, we ended on a verse that I noticed didn't make it on any of the Christmas cards that some of you sent me this year. That is Zephaniah 3, chapter, or, or chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision It's to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. I I tried to put that on their Christmas card, but my wife said, you know, I think there's other verses that might be more appropriate. (laughs) But these verses are in the Bible for a reason. And it's from verses like these that we get the phrase that shows up in scripture over and over again. Our God is a consuming fire. And it's not just an Old Testament concept. It's in the New Testament as well. Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 mentions, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us offer to God acceptable worship for our God is a consuming fire. And this concept of of fire is one that is, is used frequently. And we're familiar with it. As a kid, when you first discover the consuming power of fire, you're fascinated and mesmerized by it. When you, when you have a campfire and your parents aren't looking, you grab every flammable thing that you can find in the yard, paper plate, whatever, and you throw it in the fire and you watch as the fire consumes and disintegrates before your eyes. But as you get older, well, let's say you're a homeowner and you're in an area where Smokey the Bear says, fire danger is very high, be very careful. And you, and you can see some of the images in the news recently in, in Boulder, Colorado area, that you know that a high fire hazard 
as one in that area, especially a homeowner, is an intimidating and terrifying thing because fire is nothing to mess with. Well, Zephaniah 3.8 is aiming to instill in us a sense of reverence and sober-mindedness about the fact that God is a consuming fire. In his holiness, he blazes with all the glory of the heat of the sun, which at its core reaches temperatures up to 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. And humanity, in their rejecting of God, in their rebelling against God, is like a paper airplane slowly making its way on a crash course to the sun that burns with 27 million degrees of heat. This is what Zephaniah is pointing out, he's warning us about, to believe that you can stand before God after living a God-ignoring, a Bible-rejecting, a self-indulging life is as foolish as thinking that you can visit the sun on a spaceship made out of Amazon cardboard boxes. It just doesn't work, kids. But even more subtle and dangerous, because he's addressing Israel, the people who think they're religious, that the people to whom Jesus comes and says they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. So to believe that your giving, your church attending, the accuracy of your Bible doctrine, the general niceness and likability that people think you have, to think that that is sufficient to gain access into the presence of God is to think that you can stand on the surface of the sun in a spacesuit made out of 100% cotton. It just doesn't work. Well, if that's the case, if, if, if leading up to Zephaniah 3.8, if the case is that God is a consuming fire and we cannot stand before him, who is able to ascend into the presence of the Lord? What hope is there? And this is where Zephaniah 3, 9 to 13 is such a soothing text for our hearts. Because when you look at Zephaniah 3, 8 and how it moves into 3, 9 to 13, it jumps right from the fact that God is a consuming fire to at that time, he will change the speech of the people. He will transform their pride into humility. He will remove their shame. Because Zephaniah follows the statement that God is a consuming fire with the imagery of God in his grace as a refining fire that purges and purifies us of our sin and transforms us into the righteousness that we could never produce in ourselves. Stated differently, Zephaniah in this passage, 3, 9 to 13, proclaims the good news that the consuming fire from whom we must be saved is the refining fire that purges and purifies us of our sin and transforms us so that we can stand in his holy presence. The imagery that's behind here is that God is like a goldsmith that puts us in the refining fire of his grace to remove all the dross and impurities of sin so that we shine forth in the gold of righteousness. Or that he's like a blacksmith that that takes the precious metal, puts it in the fire and heats it up so that he can mold and shape and transform us into the image of his beloved son. Or he takes sand or whatever it is and he puts it in the fire and he brings us forth as radiant glass that he can shape according to his grace. And so this is what we're going to see in this passage this morning. We're going to look at three ways that the refining fire of God's grace purges and purifies our hearts so that we come forth as transformed people that can stand in the holy presence of God. So first, the refining fire of God's grace purges and purifies us 
of a man-centered orientation to life. Another way you could say it is that God's grace purifies us from thinking that life is all about me and I'm the center of the universe. Everyone has something that stands at the center of their life around which everything else orients or around which you try to make everything else orient and gravitate around. It's that something that motivates you to get out of bed in the morning. It's that something that gives you the drive of ambition. It's that something that you're willing to make great sacrifices for or sometimes, sadly, great compromises for. It's where the trail of your time and your money lead and point to. It's that thing that you're most happy when you feel you have it and most sad and angry when you feel like it's not in your possession. And for many of us, the central reality that orients our lives is captured well by the language of the people in the episode of Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel episode. Let us build a tower to the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. The story of Babel in Genesis 11 is all about depicting the degrading, degenerating progress of sin in the human heart. That God created us to image him, to reflect him, to be an outward-oriented, others-focused type of people. They're seeking to reflect the glory of God. But sin curves us in on ourselves and makes us think that it's all about us. That life is meant to rotate around me. We become a me-centric universe. And we may not be building actual towers and structures and monuments to our own name, but we are often very busy at building invisible castles and walls to fortify the kingdom of self. And we're very busy at work. And in my kingdom of self, I have decreed that my children always clean up after themselves everywhere they go, and my wife always knows when I am hungry and has food immediately ready for me. And when those decrees are not met, the peasants in my kingdom will feel my irrational anger. <laughs> or kids, especially around this time of year and a little bit earlier, are busy building the kingdom of self in which they decree that their parents will answer all their wants when they want them in exactly the way they want them. And when that doesn't happen, you will hear the tantrum roar. And yet, what we find often when we try to build the kingdom of self and try to orient everyone else's planets around us, we find that living life as if it's all about me is exhausting work. It's exhausting work because you have to constantly spend yourself reminding everyone around you that they exist to make your life happy and meaningful. And people need a lot of reminding when it comes to being all about you. It's also exhausting because there's a lot of competition out there for being the center of the universe, right? Almost every relational conflict, I'm, I'm imagining, I've never had one, but I imagine for some, almost every relational conflict in your life is a result of two incompatible kingdoms of self coming into contact. Two people trying to build a kingdom of self and the decrees are not compatible and it's an unstoppable force meeting an immovable object. It's kind of that, that Western statement in those Western movies, this town isn't big enough for the two of us. That's a relational conflict in essence. But when God places us in the refining fire of his grace, he purges us of a me-centered orientation to life. And we come forth as those transformed to have a God-centered orientation to life. And Zephaniah describes this in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 3. Look there with me. 
when he describes it to, and the reason I brought up the Babel episode is because he is using subtle imagery of the Tower of Babel episode in Genesis 11 to describe the future day change that God is going to bring. For at that time, verse 9, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. So even in there, you, you see that the change that God's grace brings is one from us who formerly spoke, let us make a name for ourselves, to those who will speak, let us praise the name of the Lord. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. That's part of the transformation of grace. And instead of being people in Babel who come together to serve self and their own ambition, we come together to serve him with one accord. It changes us in terms of the orientation of our service. Well, the inevitable result of a life centered on self is conflict because our agenda competes with everyone else's. But when we orient our life to the glory of God, it actually brings us together in the truest unity where there's enough room for everyone because we all have the same focus, which is the glory of God. Well, verse 10 continues the reversal of Babel imagery. It says this, From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed one, shall bring my offering. So in the Babel episode, you have people coming together to build a name for themselves, and then God confuses their languages and disperses them throughout the face of the earth. And they continue their rebellion, but they do it dispersed and divided rather than unified. Well, you see that reversal starting to take place in the book of Acts. In Acts 2, the people are coming together to celebrate Pentecost. Peter's preaching the gospel to them, and everyone hears the gospel spoken in their own language. They hear good news in their language, and they start to praise God together. And then the ultimate picture is what we read in the call to worship, Revelation 5, that John gets a vision of heaven, people surrounding the throne room, not debating their vaccine status or their political views, but worshiping the lamb who was slain in all their tribes, tongues, languages, people, and nations coming together in worship. And the church is meant to be a preview of that future reality of heaven. That we're meant to give this world, which is so divided over so many issues, a picture of people who come together despite our differences, despite what may divide us, to show that Christ is the center of our lives that holds everything together. The most important thing about this congregation is not what are your political views, what's your health status. The most important thing is do you love Christ and do you want to worship him and follow him with me and serve the cause of his kingdom? That dispels all the other things that would divide us and it's the only thing strong enough to exhibit a gravitational force that keeps every other planet in alignment and from crashing into one another. And we're, we're to let this picture of the future fill our hearts with hope, that the purifying power of God's grace will actually change us so that we're no longer centered on self, but we're centered on Christ. And the reason you can hold on to this promise is because God signs this promise in his own name. Look at it in verse 9. For at that time, you will change. That's not what it says. I will change the speech of the people into a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord. The promises of God are dependent not on your ability to overcome your sin, but on God's grace, which purifies us and purges us of sin. God has written all of his promises in his own handwriting and signed them with his own name. 
And so when we look at God's promises, it's, it's as if we're, we're looking at the future reality that God is guaranteeing and watching it break into and invade the present as it works on us right here and right now and changes us slowly into the reality that we're actually going to become. I mean, clinging and holding on to God's promises and watching them change in the present is the closest you will ever get to time travel. It's, it's watching the future reality break into the present and change who you are today. And so I would, I would encourage you with a simple application regarding this specific promise to break the power of self-centeredness in your own life. Every day, be on the lookout for blessings and gifts and accomplishments in your life that you can turn into reasons to give God glory and praise. Because gratitude is the most flammable kindling for a God-centered life. Gratitude is the most flammable kindling for a God-centered life. So every day, sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow, but then personalize it. Name those blessings that have flowed to you from God. Because one who is busy giving glory to God will be too busy to seek glory for themselves. Gratitude is the kindling of a God-centered life. Well, second, the refining fire of God's grace purges and purifies us of a shame-filled conscience. So look with me at the first part of verse 11 in chapter 3. Another promise. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. So here's a second promise of God's grace. that He's going to refine us such that we are no longer those who have to deal with a shame-filled conscience. And thus far in the book of Zephaniah, the day of the Lord has been described as this terrifying courtroom scene in which the judge, the righteous judge of all the earth, gathers and assembles the rebels of this world and sentences them because of their guilt of idolatry and rebellion and pride and hypocrisy. But now... There's another verdict that is going to be given on that courtroom day when we stand in God's presence. He's going to deliver a much different, much sweeter verdict. So for those who have said, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. For those who have been so weighed down by the guilt of their sin that all they can do is hang their heads before heaven and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. For those who only have a mustard seed of childlike faith and say, I know I'm a sinner and I know I need Christ as my savior. That day is going to be one of the sweetest days because we're going to walk into that courtroom not to hear the sentence of judgment on our sin, but to hear the judge acquit us of every single one of our crimes that we are truly guilty for. Because despite the fact of our record of rebellion, for those who trust in Christ as their savior, they are going to hear from the courtroom above all courtrooms and the judge above all judge, they're going to hear the verdict, not guilty, forgiven, no condemnation, justified, accepted, loved, adopted, coming from that judge's seat. For Christians, you should never be afraid of having to walk into God's courtroom. In fact, you should long for it because it's the day when you will be openly acknowledged and acquitted waiting to hear that sentence that you so struggle to believe right now. 
And with each pronouncement from that judge, not guilty, forgiven, accepted, loved, the shackles of shame and guilt and disgrace will fall off, never to come back ever again. You shall not be put to shame. And what's so amazing about this pronouncement, look at verse 11. On that day, you shall not be put to shame. Not because you have nothing to be worried about, but because he's going to cancel all the deeds by which you have rebelled against him. The glory of the gospel is that God takes people who should be declared guilty and he declares them not guilty. See, in in our world, there's two ways that we try to handle shame and guilt. Either by reworking our conscience so that we don't feel bad about the things we should feel bad about, or by canceling others and giving them no hope of forgiveness at all, ever. And yet the gospel does it much differently. It says, yes, there is a reason why you, you feel a sense of shame. You feel a sense of guilt because you have sinned. But the good news of the gospel is it deals with it fully, freely, and forever so that you never have to face shame and guilt and dishonor again because Christ wipes it away. And so when we go into the refiner's fire of God's grace, we're purged and purified of all the shame, all the guilt, all the dishonor that our rebellious deeds have brought. And we come forth transformed as those who will live fully embracing the assurance of God's love and acceptance. That there'll never be one day in eternity when we doubt that we've been forgiven. There's condemnation, there's no condemnation. There's condemnation. We won't deal with that at all. We'll live fully secure in the fact that our Father loves us, that he has forgiven every single one of our sins. But I would imagine for many of you, the promise of that future reality feels so different from your present experience of God's forgiveness and love. For many of you, the the sins of the past, the the, the lack of progress you feel in the present, and and the despair when you think about the future, all conspire together to make the voice of shame probably the loudest voice you hear in your life. Because someone has described shame as like having a preacher in your head that delivers constant, discouraging, anti-gospel sermons. Hopefully not like having me in your head. That would be bad. But shame is like having this preacher in a pulpit who is constantly delivering anti-gospel sermons to you. And it's usually a three-point sermon. There's much condemnation for you because your past sin is so scandalous, your present progress is so pathetic, and your future prospects are so hopeless. Therefore, have much condemnation. That's the preacher that some of you, I'm sure, recognize in your own life and head. Well, part of the process for removing the dross of shame is recognizing the anti-gospel message of shame and replacing it with gospel truth. Think of dealing with shame as like a, a chess match in which there's move and counter move. Every message of shame is countered with a gospel truth that cancels it out until you finally checkmate shame. And so what are some of the anti-gospel messages that you hear shame preaching in your own head? And what is the counter move of gospel truth that you need to proclaim to yourself? For me, early on in my, my time at San Harbor, I think I've been here seven years, um, the, the sermon of shame I heard was, you're too young, you're too inexperienced, you, don't, you lack what you need to to be able to serve this church. And I'm, I'm not asking for you to send me cards or anything like that. It will help me overcome it. 
But I had to preach to myself the sermon that God's grace is sufficient to overcome any age, any inexperience that I may or may not have. Because God's power is made perfect in weakness, all weaknesses, inexperience or age or whatever. Well, what messages of shame do you hear and what gospel truth do you need to preach to yourself? Another way to drown out the voice of shame is counterintuitively to many people to share the message of shame that you're struggling with to other trusted believers in Christ. So many times the voice of shame is so loud that you cannot tune it out until you share it with someone else who helps you turn down its volume in your own head. And also shame is one of those things that it grows louder and louder in the darkness, but is quieted when it's exposed to the light and brought before another person. So I'd encourage you, I, I, I shared it with other fellow pastors when I was struggling with, with shame, and it was so good to hear someone else be that voice of gospel truth in my life that I couldn't be because the volume of shame was too loud in my own head. Or one way you can seek to minister to those who struggle with a sense of shame and, and are burdened by guilt is to seek to be a voice of encouragement in the life of others. That the ministry of one another is to be ministers of God's words of encouragement and grace in the lives of others. Our, our words are meant to deliver grace to those who hear. Do not let any unwholesome words come out of your mouth, but only such as is helpful for building others up that it may minister grace to those who hear. I think that's Ephesians 4.28. So when you come to others, you can encourage them by pointing out evidences of God's grace in their life. You say, I, I see God working in your life this way. When, when I've heard people say that to me, it is so... It is a breath of fresh air in my life, wind in my sails. Or you can encourage others by reminding them of gospel truths. You know, I, I notice you constantly bring up your sins of the past. You're replaying them over and over in your head. I just want to let you know that God remembers your sins no more. That you may remember them, but he doesn't. And he casts them as far away as the east is from the west. He removes them from you. Be the voice of the gospel in the life of others who can't seem to hear it. Well, the refining fire of God's grace purifies us of a shame-filled conscience and one day ultimately will transform us to those who live fully secure in the forever love and forgiveness of God. Well, third and finally, the refining fire of God's grace purges and purifies us of a pride-filled heart. Look at the second half of verse 11 into verse 12. It says, For then... I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. So you start to see the imagery of a goldsmith before a refiner's fire, that he puts this gold in to remove the dross so that he can leave the gold. And so you see those verbs, I will remove pride and I will leave Humility. So God places us in the refining fire of his grace so that we are purged of pride and transformed into people who are humble and lowly. And then the rest of verse 12 and 13 starts to document all the fruit that comes forth when pride is replaced with humility. So to transform our relationship with the Lord so that we are those who seek refuge in the name of the Lord. So when pride is replaced with humility, we become those who are, instead of being self-dependent, 
self-sufficient, we become dependent on the Lord and seek his grace. And then it transforms our actions toward others. It says in verse 13, those who are left in Israel shall do no injustice. Pride is always the root that feeds injustice, that we look down on others so we mistreat others. Humility is instead of looking down on others, we start to look at others as people we can serve and care for and minister to. And then it'll even transform our tongues, our speech. They shall speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. Pride is the source that feeds lies and deception. Think about when, when you're proud, you need others to think highly of you, so you'll actually make things up. You'll lie about who you are, your reputation, the fish you caught, the, the shots you took on hole 16, so that others will think more highly of you. But humility always rejoices in the truth, regardless of what it may cost our reputation and others' view of us, because we don't, we don't care what others think about us. And I think this list here is representative rather than exhaustive. And it's meant to illustrate for us the fact that as pride is the mother of every vice, humility is the mother of every virtue. Pride is not just a sin you struggle with. It is the great sin, the mother of all sins that you struggle with. It's the sin for which Lucifer got kicked out of heaven, and it's the sin for which Adam got kicked out of Eden. And it is the sin beneath every one of your sins. And likewise, humility is not just a virtue. It is the virtue. It is that which gives fruit and life to every other thing in righteousness and holiness. And notice that Zephaniah deals with pride right after dealing with shame. Back to back, he deals first with shame and then with pride. And I think he does that very intentionally because although we think of shame and pride as opposites, and in some sense they are, they are in many ways identical to each other. And, and I have to thank uh, Lane for giving me this insight in his book, The Disquieted Soul. So now you can, you can battle pride over there now. <laughs> pride and shame are opposite in terms of the message they proclaim. Shame feels inferior, while pride feels superior. Shame hears voices of disapproval, anti-gospel sermons, while pride hears voices of applause. Shame hides in the shadows. Pride parades itself in the streets. They're opposite that way, but notice how they're identical. They're identical in that their false messages spring from the same source. The common denominator of both shame and pride is a deformed sense of self, an improper view of self. Both shame and pride are all about me. Shame says, woe is me. Pride says, wow is me. He didn't put that in his book. I just, I came up with that. They're also identical in that they both keep us from seeking refuge in the Lord. That's the first thing in the list after pride is removed and humility is replaced or put in us. It says, they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Shame and pride both keep us from experiencing that. Shame tells us we're so bad that we're beyond the reach of God's grace, that we're not worthy to come in his presence. And pride tells us that we're so good that we're beyond the need of God's grace, that we don't, we don't need his presence because we have ourselves to rely on. And finally, they're identical in that humility is the antidote to both of them. The humility that the gospel produces is a humility that teaches us 
It is not about me. It's all about Christ. I must decrease and he must increase. It's all about him because despite the reasons that I might have for my shame, he came to me, he sought me, and he purchased my cleansing and my forgiveness. So I need no longer feel shame. And it's all about him because despite the reasons I might think I have for my pride, he humbled himself, became a servant, so that he could pay for all of my arrogant rebellion against God. So humility teaches us when we come in contact with the gospel that we are not so bad that we're beyond the reach of God's grace. And we are not so good that we're without the need of God's grace. The gospel makes us truly humble people. And the promise of this passage, as hard as it is to believe, is that one day every molecule of pride in your heart will be fully removed from you. You will never be proud again. It's harder for others than it is for me to imagine. I know. Okay, it's a joke. But one day God will remove every molecule of pride from our hearts. And in its place will be a self-forgetful savior fixation. That's how the Bible defines humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, kind of deprecating yourself. Humility is when we forget ourselves because we're so fixated on the Savior, a self-forgetful Savior fixation. And when we are so fixated on Christ, guess what? We actually start to become like him towards others. That sitting in the glow of his grace, we actually are warmed by his character and changed and transformed so that we consider others more important than ourselves. That we look to the interests of others more than we look to our own interests. So in your struggle with pride, you can cling to God's promise that one day you will be humble. Because as with all his promises, he writes it with his own handwriting and he signs it with his own name. He signs it twice. I will remove and I will leave. Every ounce of pride will be gone and you will be filled with humility. So I want to close with these two applications regarding the promises of God. I would encourage you in the new year to make it a habit to dwell on the promises of God and let the future realities of God's grace transform who you are today. So first, take God's promises and ponder them constantly. Soak up the hope of God's promises like a snowbird from the Midwest soaks up the Florida sun in January. Get get the vitamin H from God's promises, vitamin hope from all of God's promises as you can. When you ponder the promises of God, it's as if the... The spring sun in the Midwest kind of breaks in and starts to melt the frost of winter in your hearts of discouragement and despondency. And we may meditate on the promises of God. It's as if the the fog of discouragement that often so blinds us from seeing clears. And when we look at God's promises, we can look back and see, I'm not what I once was. And we can look forward and see, you know what? I'm starting to actually become like what I one day will finally, fully and forever be. That's what God's promises do when you ponder them. And then take God's promises as you ponder them and plead them before the throne of grace. Ponder and plead God's promises for your own life. The Puritans would speak about praying God's promises as if you were showing God his own signature and asking him to make due on his guarantee of these things. The Puritan Thomas Manton said, one way to get comfort is to plead the promises of God in prayer, show God his own handwriting. God is tender of his own word. And one Puritan was so bold as to say that in prayer, 
You should take the promises of God, bring them into the courts of heaven, and sue God according to his own promises. That's bold. But God, in one sense, asks us to. Come, come boldly before my throne and plead to me my own word. And one hymn writer even took up this bold language. And he wrote this, Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. The Father loves to answer prayer. Thou art coming to a king. Large promises with thee bring. That's what prayer is. Pleading before God, his own promises, suing him according to his own word that he might make due on them. Do boldly and yet humbly. So God promises to you that the refining fire of his grace is so powerful, so perfect that he will purge and purify all your sin so that you will come forth transformed into the image of his son. And when you hold on to those promises, you watch that future reality break into the presence and start changing who you are today. Well, let's pray in light of those promises. Lord, you've given us so many precious and very great promises, which are all yes and amen in Christ. So we pray, Lord, be it to your servants according to the words you have spoken. Turn to us and be gracious, as is your way with those who love your name. Do more for us, far more than we are able to ask or think or imagine, and supply all our needs according to the riches that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Before we sing, I forgot one point that I wrote down. You need to filter God's promises through the prism of Jesus Christ. The only reason you can claim any promise is not because you have any merit of your own. It's because every single one of God's promise is yes and amen in Christ. He is the prism through which the light of God's promises are refracted and then come to you and shine on you. And unless you know that prism and and have it and can refract those promises through it, in one sense, you don't have the hope of the promises. But when you cling to Christ, you have the guarantee of every promise. All of them are yes and amen in him. And so in, in light of that, let's stand together. Let's sing on page nine and 10 of our bulletin. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Stand with me.